This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today on QWERTY Podcast, we're talking to the creator of the best-selling book, Bitter with Baggage, Seek Same, which is how you might know Sloane Tannen, but you should know her from her new novel called There's a Word for That, just out by Little Brown. In this interview, we want to know why she turned to fiction instead of memoir for this book, since after all, some of her life story sounds like what she takes on in her novel. So Sloan, it's such a joy to have you with us today. I'm delighted that you were able to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Good. So I know you as one of the few polymaths that I honestly do know. <laughs> in other words, I have a painting of yours that hangs in my house that I just adore, that I pass you every do? single I day. You do? I didn't know that. Why do? I know that? Yeah, oh. you did. You gave it to me. And, um, oh. <laughs> and you have these... <laughs> <laughs> Nine illustrated and young adult books. I mean, there was a time when I couldn't ride the New York City subway Sub- without subway, yep. looking up and seeing those remarkable Easter chicks of yours that you turned into dioramas that you then turned into books. I remember seeing these for, for a good long time. You've you've got visual art and and prior books that did so well. And you have such a wide variety of talent. And honestly, my first question has to be, so what gets a woman to choose fiction? Arguably one of the most difficult things in the world to do. Absolutely. I do think it took a long time to get here. You know, I I was a painter for so many years after graduate school. I never took a writing course in my life. I still haven't. Um, and I think I was afraid to. So I think in some sense, the they were all baby steps along the way, getting to writing a novel, this novel. I did do a young adult novel before this one, but I think even that was a little bit of a sidestepping to sort of jumping into something that I was fundamentally really afraid of of tackling head on. And I think, you know, with the chicken books, even those, when I think back, are a little bit autobiographical. They're, you know, you're in and you're out. I sort of like the brevity of them. And I just, Mm. I never wanted to rest too long in one place. That felt really scary to me. Um, And painting is visual and something I'm very comfortable with, more comfortable with, probably more confident in finally. So that was a good place for me to be. And I might have stayed there longer had circumstances not come about that made that really just an impossibility for me. So I knew I kind of had to turn to writing. There 
there's not that much I'm good at, you know, other than sort of the creative stuff. <laughs> and, Says like, the polymath. Well, right. you know, like, Says sitting, the polymath. Well, like sitting in an office, I was like a deer in headlights every job I had. I'm yep. like, I would be like the nightmare assistant, right? Who they would say FedEx this <laughs> and make sure it gets there tomorrow. And I was like, where's, where are the slips? You know, <laughs> yeah, you're Anne Hathaway in, in Devil Wears Prada. And there was no arc, right? It all was just bad, bad, bad. And then I would get fired. So I needed to figure out something to do that, you know, would allow me not to feel like a complete and total loser in the world. So, you know, I think a lot of people sort of turn to the arts as a way, because it's, it's a way for the, it's a place for people who are fearful to go. And often those people have a lot to say, but it's they hard do. to find what that voice is going to be, you know? And I think if you do have a talent maybe or a proclivity for different sorts of mediums it's even harder and it takes longer to get there and you know this may or not be that place for me but right now it feels like it is and it's taken a long time to get here but you know things change so this is interesting the growth of an artist because i i was an art i was a photographer uh, i was an artist and a writer oh, I didn't now know web that. developer now doing video stuff i never plotted where I was going. I, I call it the ice flow theory of career. I'm on an ice flow and then suddenly I bump into another ice flow and I'm like, oh, I better step off and do this one. And it takes me in an entirely different direction. Definitely. Did you have a secret desire to always be a writer or was it sort of kind of bumping ice flow to ice flow till you became a writer? I think it was a combination of both. Like I think if I look mm -hmm. back on being a kid I remember getting a pen and a pad of paper from my best friend's mother for mm -hmm. some graduation, maybe from grammar school saying, I know this is your path. I, I used to write poems, you know, whatever it was I was doing. And I, that scared me, right? I thought it's, it, yeah. I was too afraid of that somehow. It felt too easy to judge or to justify. And it felt so, I think intimidating because I'm a big reader and everybody else's voice seems so self-assured. So it, it, it felt too scary to me. So I think I would jump on various blocks of ice and try to hmm. sort of circumvent what maybe was where I should have been going all along. And it's, you know, it's funny. I think you end up landing where you're supposed to be eventually, but I, and I think at a particular time too, exactly, you know, being a writer, 30 years ago, it may not have worked for you. Well, and I think that's true too. And I also had a real preoccupation with being taken seriously. And so, mm. you know, I went to, I was in academia for a really long time. You know, I went, I got, I went to college and then I went to, into a PhD program and I ended up not finishing the PhD program and taking two masters instead. I just, because it wasn't really right for me, any of those things, but I felt like I had something to prove, I think. And, you know, even with the chickens, which did really well, they were really successful commercially. I had this sort of shame around it. Like it wasn't, you know, like my dad had put me through graduate school and spent God knows how much money paying for that. And then I went and wrote some chicken books. You know, I was sort of, in, I was sort of, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's always this yeah. kind of, and I think there's that fraud complex that we all have, you know, that, that goes yes, on. Yes, we all Yeah, have. so I mean, all of those things sort of were this perfect storm of, of feeling kind of lost and jumping around and not, not diving into, you know, a novel, a novel. 
I'm so glad you did. I, I tell my writer, the writers I work with all the time, that writing from counterphobia is the single greatest place to write from. Oh, is so it? Oh, good. St- That's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. A- absolutely. I, I walked into a, an autopsy years ago as part of a book I was writing, and I'm, I get, I pass out when I get my own blood drawn. So what I was able to bring to the autopsy was kind of what you would bring to the autopsy, which is, oh, no. Right. You're yeah. opening the drawer. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. So, you know, that I think has probably served you really well. So I'm sorry for all the fear, but I'm really glad for it as a reader because it gives us this this really um, immediate and fantastic response you have throughout this story. So so let's talk about that. I mean, this new book is called There's a Word for That. And uh, I think David wanted to ask you a question though, about how you got there, right? Yes. I mean... You know, most of the world, if not, they will know after this, your dad was a very famous Hollywood producer, that you were in Hollywood and around that whole world at the pinnacle of those young adult movies like Sixteen Candles, the John Hughes movies. And so you were there while it was all going on. And so much of that happens in this book. Now, my question is, did did this come because you decided not to write a memoir about what happened? Uh, what was the decision to make it fiction? versus talking from a first-person point of view? I don't think of it so much as a Hollywood novel, as a novel that takes place in Hollywood. It's a family story, Mm -hmm. and it's a family story that takes place 30 years after these people have succeeded or had their moment in Hollywood or are sort of past their prime. Um, So I did Mm -hmm. very much grow up in a Hollywood landscape, but my day-to-day experience was not one of, you know, Golden Globe Awards and parties. My father very much believed in keeping a remove. His family, which is in the book, if, you know, that he, he didn't, he really didn't want us to be a part of that. He didn't fundamentally think it was a healthy place for a family and his children to be. He sort of loathed the world, I think, as much as he profited from it and as much as he deeply loved movies. And, you know, and not only did I grow up there, he he actually produced those John Hughes movies. So, and I, I knew John Hughes and, you know, not very well, but I knew him a bit. So the sort of childhood teenage angst of it all was very real but and i think the way it plays out in the book is very real but it's not really about hollywood it's just i picked the location mm-hmm. because it was familiar and like you know lori moore says like you you sort of take what ingredients are in the cupboard right and use them but it certainly wasn't it's mm-hmm. not autobiographical i wouldn't say at all there are pieces uh, but it's not it's not a story drawn directly by by any means. And I never I never thought mm-hmm. about making it a memoir to answer your question. It didn't ever occur to me, I okay. don't think, to do that. I think I would have been afraid to do that, probably. Fear of sort of capitalizing on events that had happened in the name of art. But I think also the fear that the events weren't bad enough or significant enough to be memoir worthy, (laughs) you know, on some level, Um, if that's a thing. Yeah. So I, I don't, I, it's definitely not an autobiography, but it's, it's, it's fictionalized, heavily fictionalized, I would say, if that, if that answers. Mm -hmm. 
So how, let's talk about that cupboard that Lori Moore, the great fiction mm-hmm. writer Lori Moore, talks about. She talks about, and I and I love that you quote her. She's uh, she's one of my yeah. very favorites. And so you talk about take take what take what ingredients are in the cupboard. So when you go to that cupboard that is mm-hmm. life, your own life. And then your own imagination, and then everything you've ever read, and everything you've ever felt, thought, smelled, tasted, heard—it's a it damn is. big cupboard. And um, you know, selection. And it, so, writing is more about what you what you leave out than what you put in. Ultimately, of course. So let's talk about that process of selection. You're you're taking a little bit of the landscape, as you called it, in which you grew up. And then a lot of the intent for each of these characters and how you make those selections fascinates me. It's about discernment, I guess. So you say you didn't ever take a writing course. So how did you learn, for instance, to, to draw your protagonist? How did you learn what she would say, what she would respond to, what, how she would react scene by scene. Let us just talk a little bit about teaching yourself to do this so well, <laughs> so well that it's a major novel coming out in American publishing by Little Brown. So talk about the process a little bit about going to the cupboard of all of it and selecting what you needed for one character. Let's do so that. I'll pick Janine because she's probably the character who's mm-hmm. the closest to me. There's I think six characters in the book. So there's a lot of points of view that I move Mm -hmm. in and out of, but I think she's the closest to me as a character. And I think it's about, you know, making the personal universal and sort of figuring out the demarcations between invention and appropriation on some level, but more, I think, you know, Mm. what, what is, how did I feel growing up? Was I a childhood television star? No. Did I live like a recluse in New York? No. Did I have that strained a relationship with my father or my sister? No. But did I have her fear? Did I have her, her insecurity? Did I have her sense of self-aggrandizement? You know, there. so it, it's more the feelings that I had and have experienced as applied to a character. Something you know, how to make somebody universally understood, right? And I think because finally that's what makes a character interesting. And, you know, not to harp on the chickens, but, you know, those felt very, those felt very personal to me. I was very surprised at the reception of those chickens because to me, they were very weird and they were very personal. And I mean, you know, there was one about the crush I had on my therapist and I thought he was just playing around with me. Right. right? And I thought he was just pretending that it was transference. I'm like, come on, you know, you like me, you know, and he didn't, but I was sure he did. because, And I put that in the book as, you know, a two line joke. And Lots of people responded, and that was a favorite, right, of people. So, Well, my therapist really did like oh, me. Oh, see, lucky you. That's all I wanted. I still think he did like me. I'm convinced he still did. He's a liar. <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah, so, you know, again, I think it's, it's, you know, what is the collective experience? What are those things that we all feel? And, and not, of course, you know, not everything appeals to everybody, and not everybody can relate. There are people who come out of the womb confident and self-assured and they know exactly what they want to do or they appear that way and that's a different kind of character that's not an experience I personally had Mm -hmm. and none of my characters in the book 
reflect that, except for Bunny, probably, who is very self-assured and very mm-hmm. confident and is sort of the antithesis of Justine, Janine. Her, her name changed at the last minute in the book. Um, so if I trip on that, that's why I can get to why and later if you want me to. Um, but and she was so much fun to write. I would say she was the most fun character to write because she was the least like me. And it was like this complete, mm-hmm. I just felt totally liberated because I think next to all those ingredients that we know are the ingredients we never use, right? Like the flavors we, That's right? a great so, and point. That's, and it's, so, and it's mm-hmm. so fun to experiment with something totally different. What I find so fascinating about what you're saying is this notion of a cupboard and the ingredients that are right next to the ones we always use and we've not used in a long time is I'm beginning to sort of, feel out fiction. And no matter what I do, no matter how extreme I make the characters, no matter how extreme I make the situations, it's my family. I can't escape that. And so I find it fascinating, which is why I asked you, memoir versus the novelization of your life or something completely different, I don't know how to escape that. And and Marion's read some of this stuff and she's like, this is your mom, an extreme version, but it's your mom. And I find that fascinating how you could have so many overlaps of of circumstance or or environment and yet you went off in a very different well track. i think you can find mm-hmm. someone in your life who maybe isn't as close or as a part of your direct family or your direct experience somebody you know even somebody you've had a conversation with somebody you've read about somebody you've seen on tv and imagine what that life mm-hmm. is right if it's and i think mm-hmm. i think that is the fun part in some way, because you get to get away from all those people that are in your head all the time. Right. And I think you can do it if you, but I, I agree with yeah. you in terms of the, you know, the memoir angle you do. I need a starting point. So there is somebody I had in mind for bunny, but she's certainly not, she's modeled on her, but it's absolutely not her. And it's, and it was fun to mm-hmm. not be shackled by any, obligation to get it right, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I love that. So the fictional version, the the fiction world in which you live is not, it is fun to not be shackled by the need to get it right. And yet you can draw from the cupboard of your own understanding and experience. And in that, I think you give people a really fabulous set of paints with which to to make this their images it's a it's a combo platter and i and and it's some of the stuff you've never used before is it is a terrific idea so when you write about and we can set up what these who these characters are a little bit for everybody it's a family drama there's an ex-wife bunny she's big she's really hmm. big in this book um and there are these daughters and they're this father to, for, for and and there's a son bunny has a son and and so there's a there's a great a, a regular cast of characters, but as you found yourself taking from the person on whom you modeled Bunny and adding to Bunny, and Bunny is big and good, and I can just about <laughs> smell the perfume from here. Did you <laughs> did, are you adding things because the story needs them? I'm assuming, or are you adding things because it's, 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 well, no, I, I assume you're adding things because the story needs them. The story needs them because she has to do certain things to provoke other things. So it's a, it's a, it's a chess game. It's a interlocking strategic. And so how do you make all those decisions? So you make Bunny more why, because you need her to provoke 
the, the, the man she used to be married to, to do certain things. I mean, how in the world do you make all that work? Again, I never took a writing class. So I didn't know that certain points had, I didn't know the dominoes had to be set up in such a way to knock over, to make things happen as they should. I didn't really realize that until I was done. And the book was 800 pages, my first draft. So (laughs) (laughs) that is so nice of you to tell everybody. Mm. 800 800 pages. pages. I thought I wrote the great American novel, you know, and nobody agreed. (laughs) So you and Theodore Dreiser were kind of competing for poundage. (laughs) Sister Carrie's. I hope you got your advance by pounds based on pounds. And and I will say what I did is I would just sit down and write a character a day. Whoever I was in the mood to spend my day with is the character I would write. I had an idea that Mm -hmm. they would seamlessly all lock together and I would have my narrative. So each character had their general arc and this is what was going to happen and then this was going to happen and then this was going to happen and – it was going to go through a sieve and land in the perfect place. And of course that isn't what happened at all. You know, and I can remember so clearly it was Rosh Hashanah <laughs> and my husband had read the draft and he was afraid to come in and tell me that all of the characters were basically on different planets. Like one was on Mars in the morning oh. and one was on Uranus in 1988, the other, you know, they were different, nothing, it Mm -hmm. was not going to work. So we had to do, and he helped me with this because I Mm -hmm. am not a mathy person at all. And so the minute it becomes a question of logistics, it's like in 10th grade, you know, geometry or whatever it was, and I just freeze. So we had to lay out Mm -hmm. a a butcher block Mm -hmm. and do a timeline. And I had to figure out, (gasps) and remember 800 pages, right? Like, when this happens to this character, this needs mm-hmm. to be happening to that character, right? At at a time that it's all going to mm-hmm. sort of clock together and work. And I can't tell you how upsetting that was. That was the first hiccup in a, in a road of many more to come. But it was the first time I realized the benefit of an outline and that it would have been smarter to think of these characters in terms of how they affect one another rather than how they exist in and of themselves. I don't remember what your original question was because I didn't just answer it. I know that. So no, <laughs> you answered it. I, my question, and then the 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 butcher block moment, the the moment of aha that they all drop into the same place. How many pages did you go? You went from eight hundred in the next go through. Do you remember? What I dropped, you dropped down to seven hundred, <laughs> and that felt painful. <laughs> We're getting there. We're moving in the right and direction. That involved not only cutting, but I had to write more, right? Because I had to I had to add things that would weave them together oh, of again. So yeah. I had to add more. And it's hard to let yeah. things go, as you know, when you're writing something. So oh. and I actually handed the book into my agent at seven hundred and you know, slapped my hands together and patted myself on the back for a job well done, you know? <laughs> and little did I know what was mm-hmm. coming, right? Which was I had to go back and, and restructure things. And she she loved it and was so supportive right off the bat. And she's very honest and I trust her. So when she said, you got to cut this down, we cannot hand in a 700 page manuscript <laughs> and it needs more tension. Oh, I know how this goes back to your original question. The characters, I love, I love, 
I'm not so interested in a plot. I don't ever read for plot. I'm not a mystery reader. I'm really only interested in character. So I somehow took that to mean, well, I can just write about characters. It doesn't matter what happens. Plot is irrelevant. Well, I guess that's not true (laughs) in a novel or a memoir. I assume that's not, that's not, nobody wants to sit in the same place with the same people, maybe in like a Sartre novel or something, but not here now. (laughs) So I had to, I had to go back and figure out what is going to happen. How do you make those characters larger or smaller? Or how do you fine tune the events in their life and the characteristics of their personality to propel the, the story forward and to keep readers engaged in what's, in what's happening? Because nobody mm-hmm. is, I don't know. You know, I, I read a lot of old British novels that are not about much at all so i am sort of on the fence with the theory that nothing that things have to happen but i guess even if they're tiny they have to happen but Mm -hmm. i will say the book like the plot became much bigger than i had ever anticipated just in the way it had not started out as a book that was going to be autobiographical at all it sort of turned into one that was more autobiographical so you know things change through the process of writing And that was part of my question, because I find that the more I write, even when it's something very distant from myself, the more I bring it back to my world. I guess I'm such a great narcissist. (laughs) I see everything through my own lens. But I, (laughs) yeah, and I think that there's, there's so much truth to that. And that's what's so fascinating to me, because when I wrote my memoir... I couldn't change the fact that I, I'm an only child and I'm Portuguese or and I grew up in Massachusetts. Right. I couldn't change any of that. And I find when I do have the freedom to change all of it, I do go way out there and then I start bringing that long casted line very close to shore. And so I, I find that I just find it utterly fascinating. I think it's very true. And mm-hmm. it feels comfortable and right the more you bring it back, right? Yes, because I think you can really be – one of the things that Marianne and I have talked about many times is that the more the more specific, the more universal. The more specific you can make that story, the more universal. And I think for me, at least with my own writing, of course, it was a memoir. The more specific of my own life, the more people could relate to yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's very true. But don't you also think that within that familiar place, you ha- you actually do have room mm-hmm. to play as long as you keep the emotional stuff true. The facts don't have to be the same. Right. In a memoir, you have to also write, but in in memoir, you need to keep facts, keep to the facts and keep to the emotional truth. Uh, Of course, there's how you look at it, what you're because you're looking back on 20 years, 30 years, in my case, I think 40 years, you start looking back. And then, of course, you can start coloring and shading the perspective. No, but I cannot change what happened. And and so that, you know, and I always thought that I really craved that wide open freedom of of fiction writing and when i started doing it i was mortified i had i had literary agoraphobia <laughs> and i wanted to go right back to the place that i knew so well which was my own world and my own family and that's such a good way to put it and i think that's so true but i'm always amazed by people like stephen king right who clearly go out mm-hmm. and yes. don't do that right i mean the or joyce carol oates where the imagination is so big and yet somehow, I mean, especially with Joyce Carol Oates, right? Like it's, we all can connect. Mm -hmm. There's something very familiar and some of it may all be her story, but is that true of Stephen King? I mean, that's a scary thought and it can't be right. But, right. No, but the, it's very scary thought. 
Of course not, but it's true of his fears exactly. or his thoughts. So or his exactly, or right? His so the fears are collective. Considers. We've all yeah. had them. And he'll tap into something you didn't even know you had, right? And you're right. like, oh, I am scared of that, right? That would be really harrowing. Absolutely. And then the expression of those fears is what you're talking about, kind of that that wiggle room that you have and how you write about it. The expression of how that fear is done, whether we're afraid of a clown or whether we're afraid of, of a car that comes to life or a cemetery in which pets come back to life. It's all those are the expressions exactly. of that fear. Now wait, I'm I'm we're not, we, but we left me hanging at my greatest fear, which is a 700 page <laughs> manuscript. So let's, let's just there's a whole novel in that. Go back. So some number of years this took you, some number of months this took you. This is a process of rewrite and clarifying what it is that you needed to do. You've got a good age. You've got a, a husband who makes you lay it out on the butcher block. You've got an agent who says, okay, now let's boil it down. You go back to the desk and you start to boil it based on how these people, as you said, have to work together. They have to work together toward this experience. So how long did the book take for you to write? The writing didn't take that long. The writing, I would say, took mm -hmm. about a year and a half. The editing took almost, mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I think it, it probably was about three years. Mm -hmm. And what did you learn in particular? What, what's the thing when you come away from it and, and, and you say, you know, like we learn things when we go through anything. What, what do you know after what you've been through? I want to say outline that you should definitely drop an outline, but I don't even know that I will do that next time because I like being taken by surprise and not knowing where my characters were going to go. That was the fun part, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think you should mm -hmm. know what it is you want to say. And I think you should know what each, have an argument. Yeah, and I think you should know what, what each character wants to say. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you necessarily. It can be the opposite of what, of what you think. Mm -hmm. But they need to argue it and argue it believably and well. So I think mm -hmm. those are, those, those are important a, things. But, good one. you know, what, when I think like what I would do differently... I think it would be, Yeah, I would definitely need some sort of a map in my head, at least of where, where the landing place was, because I just had so, I had so much fun, right? I had such a, I was I had the most fun writing this book and the worst time editing it. So it was like this, this, the two sides of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fun part got left behind a long time ago. Right. But, you know, once I got a good editor after I threw my fits and got over the huge task in front of me, it was fun to go in and make it work because you could feel it when it starts to work again. And you get so separated and distanced from that place where good things are happening when you're in the weeds with editing. It can be miserable. I mean, you just want to burn the whole thing and say, I don't, this isn't for me. I'm not doing this anymore. Right. But then it, but then it changes and, and it feels good again. And that's a, that's a really great moment and in, in the and you know when you're in the hands of a good editor and when you're in the hands of not a good editor or not not a not a not good editor mm -hmm. but but when you know when somebody's sort of saying what you want to hear or they're kind of pussyfooting around the issues and then when somebody comes in with a cleaver and you want to die you know once you take the time to absorb it that they know what they're doing and now you have to listen and do the work <laughs> were you surprised as you were writing? Because it sounds as if you were, what do they call them, Marian Pantsers, you mm -hmm. know, just sitting down and, and letting the story take you, kind of flying by the seat of your pants, letting the characters lead you and the story lead you. 
Were you surprised when you finished your 800-page uh, opus that there were these imageries and there was this these themes and even certain language uh, constructs that started tying into each other that you didn't realize that you were doing, but you were knitting something 100%. throughout the whole That's process? That's very true. And I will say, and I don't. this may speak to the memoir aspect of things, the first thing to go were there were a lot of flashbacks in the book, a lot. Who they, they were actual chapters mm -hmm. that were interspersed that were, you know, from the seventies and the eighties. And those were the first things to go. And I felt like that information was really necessary, but realizing that it wasn't necessary and that you could just sprinkle it in was, was mm -hmm. devastating. Cause those I thought were some of the best chapters because they felt a lot of them were more autobiographical and it was so fun to invent conversations that might've happened. And that I and then I didn't get to put them mm -hmm. in there, and that felt so upsetting. And I and I would go read, um, you know, the corrections or a little life. You know, people who do that so well, who just weave it in so seamlessly, and you don't, right. you're not even aware that you're sort of in a flashback, right? Because um, it, it, I it it wasn't graceful mm -hmm. enough the way I had done it, but I learned how to layer that in. And a lot of that was the more personal material. I think the stuff that had happened in in the past. Jonathan Franzen in the corrections does the flashback beautifully. I, for beautifully, me, yeah. Elena Ferrante in the my the, the my brilliant friend series. The she's walking down the street at sixty and suddenly she's six in the same sentence. The exactly. way she moves in time is breathtaking. It is yeah. breathtaking, and you're not aware of it. And you're not aware of it. So you learn some skills and, and you, you threw yourself into this novel. You, 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 you wrote 800 pages, you threw it onto a, a butcher block. You smacked, you smacked it down to 700. You kept getting down, getting down, getting down further and further, learning a new set of skills. Are they going to be applied to another book? Definitely. Definitely. And I already have some ideas that I have going forth, but it's funny because I think Previously, the books I was thinking about doing were farther away from me. And like you were saying, David, now I think they're going to come mm -hmm. a little bit back Closer to home. I think so, because I think I, it's what I'll, it's, it's what, it's, it's finally what always works unless you're writing fantasy, right? Or you're writing a completely different genre. Sure. For me, I just think that's going to be the most um, authentic experience. Uh, and but it you know I really do think it's it's very tricky when you are modeling characters on specific people, and I don't know what mm -hmm. you what kind of advice you give to people about that sort of thing. But I think that's always always really hard. And I think you know again with the character that wasn't somebody I was modeling on, it, they were they were much easier to write. But when it was somebody that I that I knew or was a real person in my life, even if it was a long time ago. I felt, you know, we all have these sort of dualities and, and capturing that somebody could be so kind and so awful or so yes. funny and so, and so, you know, brutal, whatever, whatever the duality is for a specific person, you really have to, that it feels, there, I felt so much pressure to get that right when it was somebody real in my life. And I think it just came more naturally when it was somebody that that I didn't know. So that I think is a right. is a really big challenge because you you, you don't want to betray that person. And it's not a matter of betraying their secrets. It's a matter of betraying the the 
because even if the character represents somebody who's moving the plot along in a negative way, in order to make the character likable or empathic or somebody the reader cares about, you have to show the good side of that person and it has to be real the way it's done. And I think that's, that's a hard thing to do. And it's something you really want to honor when it's, when it's yes. somebody you loved, especially. And I think that's very true in memoir. And the one thing I find so refreshing, uh, Sloan, is that, and I think this will really be very useful to our listeners, is your, your authenticity and your humility and your honesty about the process, about really having gone in and not really knowing how to do this and how you chipped away at it and chipped away at it. I think a lot of writers, myself included, I had never written a, a memoir. And here I am with a 120-something thousand word manuscript, a book that ended right. up being published. I didn't know how to do it. And I think that you're giving people permission to stumble and to be to learn um, by themselves, to learn from their mistakes, and not feel that they have to go through you know fifteen years of being a writer before they can they can really truly write the the memoir or the or the the novel they want to write. And I think that's really a great takeaway for our listeners. I think so. Too. I'm glad, and 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 I think it's really so true. And I think the most important thing is to to keep your voice right because the minute mm -hmm. that starts to slip to slip away from you then then you have nothing then you better have taken some writing courses or be listening to lots of podcasts or reading i don't know what you're supposed to be doing because if you don't have a, a voice and a, and a point of view you don't mm -hmm. have anything but if you have that that's something that isn't it's not really teachable right it's something you have and people most people have it right it's just a matter of getting it on on the page The book is There's a Word for That, out now from Little Brown. Please subscribe to the Porty Podcast, and you can listen to us on the go. And thanks so much for coming by today. Mm -hmm.